Good afternoon. It is Thursday, April 16, 2020. This is the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. We come to you each day at 2 p.m. by telephone, by your regular home phone, so we can bring some content into your lives, content from the Cote St. Luke Parks and Recreation Department and the Cote St. Luke Public Library. Uh, Today we have two pieces for you. Uh, For the first half hour, we have an interview with members of Kesara. It's a uh, crooners group. Uh, They sing American songbook classics, and they're being interviewed by Anissa Cameron, who is the artistic director of the Cote St. Luke Dramatic Society. And I think you will enjoy it. We also have some music from them as well, so you can get a sense of the kind of music that they play. At the 30-minute mark, you can look forward to a talk from our librarian, Stephen Tomlinson, who's going to be uh, talking about Cecil B. DeMille and the making of the Ten Commandments. This is the second part. The first part aired last week. Um, This is part two. We think you will enjoy this as well. The show today is about an hour, so stick with us. And it begins now. Take it away, Anissa. Hi, everybody. I am here with the three members of musical trio Kesara, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, Anissa. Thanks for having us. My name is Joanne Cutler, and I'm lead singer of the trio. Hi, Anissa. I'm Merv Middling. I belong to Joanne Cutler. Um, <laughs> I sing a couple of songs and mostly play uh, percussion in the band. All right, I'm Nick Burgess and I play the piano and do backup singing and also sing a few songs in the band. And do most of the arrangements for us. Yeah, that's true. Um, So each of you are musicians and performers. Tell us a little bit about how music came into your lives and how you decided to pursue it. Well, if we're staying in the same order, um, I was a very shy young girl. A lot of people that know me now would never believe it, but I was extremely introverted. Uh, Took some piano lessons, which I was a major failure at because I couldn't read music very well. Went to guitar lessons and I would sing in my bedroom by myself with my guitar Mm. a lot and never ever in public, but I finally joined musical theater, I found it by accident and um, started as a dancer because I had danced all my childhood, ballet, tap, jazz. Um, And as a skinny little teenager, I started musical theater and then eventually found my voice. Uh, Went from band to band and uh, I ended up here, which is really my perfect niche, I think, doing uh, ballads and um, standards. Well, I, uh, I always loved music. I never had a chance to do anything in music until I got to work for Club Med. And uh, through lots of alcohol, I got on stage almost every <laughs> yep. night doing all kinds of crazy, crazy things. Sometimes We've seen the photos. It was Club Med. It was Club Med, for God's sake. Yeah. So after that, I mean, I've, I forgot about music for a long time. You moved to Canada. I moved to Canada, forgot about music. Then I met Joanne, who kindled it all again for me. Um, and we've done some amazing things together. And I've done so. I've been on huge stages now, all because of this lady. Have I told you lately that I love you? Have I told you there's no one else above you? You fill my heart with gladness. 
take away all my sadness, ease my troubles, that's what you do. For the morning sun in all its glory greets the day with hope and comfort too. You fill my life with laughter And somehow you make it better Ease my troubles, that's what you do There's a love that's divine And it's yours and it's mine Just like the sun And at the end of the day, we should give thanks and pray to the one, to the one. Have I told you lately that I love you? Have I told you there's no one else above you? You fill my heart with gladness You take away all my sadness Ease my troubles, that's what you do And there's a love that's divine And it's yours and it's mine Like the sun, like the sun And at the end of the day, we should give thanks and pray to the one, to the one. Have I told you lately that I love you? Have I told you there's no one else above you? You fill my heart with gladness And take away all my sadness Ease my trouble, that's what you do Fill my heart with gladness Take away all my sadness Ease my troubles That's what you do I love it. I, I mean, I started playing piano when I was about six or seven. And then uh, just decided, you know, around Sejap time that I was going to do that as my, my full-time, you know, career choice. And then went to McGill and then spent some time in London at the Royal College of Music. And then when I came back, I was actually supposed to do, I'd studied film music. And I really thought I was going to, you know, be the next John Williams or whatever. And then I got back and kind of fell into musical theater and it was much more my style. And so I've been doing that ever since for the last like 20 years or so. Much to all of our enjoyment and uh, ah. in, our, in all of our best interests to have yeah. Nick Burgess here in Montreal and ah. in St. Luke. Um, so maybe now would be a good time to ask you all because you've all come together here um, how did Kesara come to be? Mm. Ah, good question. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, well, 
we had met, we met Nick originally uh, 11 uh, and a bit years ago when the very first Siegel Center fundraiser started. Year one, uh, he was our musical director. Uh, Merv and I got involved. We were told that the band could use backup vocalists. Mm. And so we offered to be the backup vocalists. We also sang a song in the show. And of course we met Nick and got to know him. A couple of months later, a, a duo that I was already involved with was hired to play at um, a wedding ceremony at a very luxurious Montreal golf course. And about a week or two before the wedding, my then piano player told me he couldn't make it. He was going to be out of town. And I called Nick, who I had just recently met, and asked him if he was available. And he actually saved the day. He came and played with me. And we hit it off so well. We had so much fun. We laughed the whole time. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, dump the other guy and uh, we put together we put together um, a great uh, uh, repertoire that has grown and grown and grown over the past 11 years and we play at charities and private home parties we get people up and dancing now uh, we don't just do the old standards which you're gonna play today but we also do some soft rock and roll we do a bit of jazz. We do, what else do we do, Nick? We do lots, Latin. Latin. Yeah. Latin songs. So just all the best songs that were ever written, really. Besame, besame mucho. Each time I cling to your kiss, I hear music divine. Besame. Bésame mucho Hold me, my darling, and say that you'll always be mine This joy is something new, my arms unfolding You never knew this thrill before Whoever thought I'd be holding you close to me Whispering it's you I adore Dearest one, if you should leave me, each little dream would take wing and my life would be through. Besame, besame mucho. Love me forever and make all my dreams come true This joy is something new, my arms unfolding You never knew this thrill before Whoever thought I'd be holding you close to me Whispering it's you I adore Dearest one if you should leave me Each little dream would take wing And my life would be through Besame, oh besame mucho Love me forever and make all my dreams come true
love me forever and make all my dreams come true. I mean, we okay. sort of, whenever there's like a new song that we, we all agree upon, we always go to like really check out, like, is this really like the cream of the crop? Like, is this the best choice we could have made? And right. those songs make it into the list because we really want to keep it like just really top quality kind of music. And um, I just, a really quick story about that first gig. Um, I hadn't played a pack about Canon, I think in, I don't know, since I was really young and and they had asked to do pack about Canon for when um, the bride entered. And so I <laughs> had to pull out my pack about Canon, which is just the same thing over and over and over again, right? But I had to really brush up on my classical playing. And then, I don't know, the bride, there was an issue, she was late, she wasn't ready to go. And so it's the kind of thing you just keep vamping up. And I think I played pack about Canon for something like 12 minutes. <laughs> and everyone was just like, oh, God, will this ever end this back about canon? So meanwhile, meanwhile, I haven't the bride, played it since, I don't think. The bride is in the back, like, behind the door. She's just like, <gasps> Yeah, exactly. Like, thank goodness it's a beautiful song, and he played it so well. And I should oh, thanks, add, yeah. And I should add that we started off as a duo, and that's why our website is Kesara Duo. Mm. Merv. I came in by accident. Well, because because I was there, I was there all the time. I used to bring all the, all, I used to bring all the gear. We have, have our own gear and set it all up, and then I would just be there. But he would serve us drinks and dance yeah. with some old ladies. So, but, but I still do that. <laughs> yeah, but, I still love that. But, but it's true though. I, I was in a I was in a band playing congas and singing and stuff, and uh, they said, "Hey, why don't you come and do some percussion You're for us?" You're here anyways. I'm here anyhow. So I did. Then I got a couple of songs. And the rest is history. So and that's why history. we're actually a trio now. And, Merv, and he does I, all of our sound too, which is awesome. That's right. He's that's really right. good He's at, at doing our sound. He's our techie. Sorry, and I, I bet I bet Merv is a real crowd favorite with with the ladies. I, I you think? Oh, I think so. I'm <laughs> sure. No, so. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> you're the only man in the room who can ballroom dance, yes. Yeah, he yes. Yeah. He can waltz, he can cha-cha, he can samba, yeah. he does all that. Baz Luhrmann, was, is, Baz Luhrmann doesn't lie to us. Australians ballroom dance, strictly yeah. ballroom. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, so now you guys are all here. Uh, Joanne and Merv, you live in Cote St. Luke. Can you talk a little bit about your history with the city of Cote St. Luke or why you decided to live in Cote St. Luke? Well, I moved to Cote St. Luke, I'm going to say 15 years ago. I never lived in Cote St. Luke all my life. I grew up in different areas of Montreal. Um, and uh, I moved here uh, at a crazy time in my life. Uh, but I, I love it here. I love the community. And when Merv and I met, uh, eventually when we moved in together and then got married, yes, in that order, uh, <laughs> he's been living with me ever since. The two of us have performed in a couple of Cote St. Luke Dramatic Society shows. Grease, one of the shows that Nick was musical director, we sang backup vocals where my son played um, the lead role. So that was a lot of fun for me. Danny. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, and Merv was in a dramatic show with you once, and we were in the show. I haven't got a clue. Haven't, haven't got a clue. Got a clue. Mm -hmm. And then last year, Merv and I were in your show called Almost Maine. Um, so we're we're official members of everything. And Cote we would Luke. be in a lot more if we could. We just we just were supposed to out. be in another show. Well, yeah. we're something rotten. It's going to happen. It's okay. it's going to happen. Come hell or high water, it will happen eventually once all of this is exactly. settled. I also mm -hmm. take a lot of courses that are offered in Code St. Luke. Aqua fitness, painting, sculpting. I've used right. a lot of the facilities here. Um, there's, there's so much going Excellent on Excellent community. Yeah. Excellent. Great people. Lots of things to do. I see trees of green, red roses too I see them bloom for me and you and I think to myself what a wonderful world I see skies of blue and clouds of white Bright blessed days, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces. Of people going by I see friends shaking hands Saying how do you do They're really saying I love you I hear babies cry I'll watch them grow They'll learn much more than I'll ever know And I think to myself What a wonderful world Myself, 
What a wonderful world Yes, I think to myself What a wonderful Yeah, I was going to say, Nick, you don't live in Cote St. Luke, but you have <laughs> worked in Cote St. Luke for 16 years. You yeah, that's right. About that? Well, I've been teaching at Bialik High School now for 16 years wow. for, their, uh, for their annual musical. So that's been an amazing, amazing joy. And working with the students of Bialik is really a highlight of my year. I just, I love the experience and I love their their attitudes and everything that they that they give back. So that's a real joy. And I've also done a couple of shows with Cozy and Lou Dramatic Society with, with Anissa. I did Greece and I did uh, Joseph, which was such an amazing awesome. experience. Huge hit and great, phenomenal cast. So amazing I mean, really, experiences. Joseph, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was the first show for the Dramatic Society where we sold out every single show. 20, 21 performances, and it, what an amazing experience. You could have sold really out 21 was. more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was, it was crazy. So now um, we're going to listen to your CD, Quesera, and Quesera by Quesera. Um, tell me a little bit about the song choices, like how you two decided mm. to, you know, like put the songs together that you did. I mean, if I can just jump in, I would say that when, when I first started working with um, Joanne and then eventually Merv, <clears throat> they already had a whole bunch of songs that they knew. And then I said, well, you know, I've been playing piano for a while. I've got a bunch of songs too. So then we just sort of went through a list and sort of cross-checked and said, okay, I know that one, I know that one. And then every once in a while, there would be a song that um, Joanne didn't necessarily know, but she wanted to learn. And same with me, like she would suggest a song that I didn't know. And I would say, oh yeah, that would be you know, good for my repertoire to learn that one. And so bit by bit, we just started putting together a list of, like I mentioned earlier, of just like what I consider to be the best of um, sort of pop, jazz, soft rock from the 60s until today. And we're still adding new songs, right, Joe? Every, oh, every couple of gigs we say, <laughs> yeah, let's, ever, do you know the song? Like, what was the one we learned recently that was really fun? It was... Um, uh, Down to the good end. Breaking up is hard to do. Breaking Up is Hard to Do, we, we added that one, which is, which is always fun. But also that Cindy Lauper tune. Oh yes, Time After Time. Time After Time, after time, time. which it's ended beautiful. up with the piano and the congas and Joanne's voice has just become like, we look forward to doing it every single time. So True. that's sort of like yeah. our, has been our modus operandi of choosing the songs. And then I'll let Joe just you know, speak for the album, how we decided on those songs. Well, at the time, um, that's, that's the type of stuff we were doing, strictly um, um, standards. And uh, we're, I love those things. I love those tunes. I probably should have been one of those lounge lizards on those baby grand pianos like in Vegas. <laughs> um, I love those tunes. I've, I've always wanted to sing so, so, those. So that's where it started. So at the time that we did that recording, um, that's basically was our repertoire and songs like that. Uh, but that recording happened quite a while ago. We're due for another recording to show 
that we do other things as well. But mm -hmm. we're very proud of that choice of song songs on the recording. And yeah. um, everybody that's either purchased or has the, the CD tells me they listen to it over and over and over again. It's that it's a feel good CD yeah. with lots of really well known songs. Time, like timeless hits, timeless hits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would also add that one of the one of the great things about K Sarah Trio is that we can be as much like background music and just sending like a really nice atmosphere as much as it can be like a show you know what i mean every once in a while when we yeah. see that people are into it and they feel like they want to dance we can really turn it into a show and like turn the volume up and have some fun then we start to feel that it's calming down again we can go back to just those those light hits that just create a beautiful atmosphere beautiful ambience without sort of getting in the way of people having conversation while they you know speak with each other and enjoy their drinks so we've we've practiced our art for many years now and we know how to feel it out. Yeah, we know how to feel it out. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Um, for everyone listening, please enjoy Kesara. It's a little bit funny, this feeling inside. I'm not one of those who can easily hide. I don't have much money, but. Boy, if I did, I'd buy a big house where we both could live. If I was a sculptor, hmm, but then again, no, or a girl who makes potions in a, a traveling show. I know it's not much, but it's the best I can do. My gift is my song, and this one's for you. And you can tell everybody this is your song. It may be quite simple, but now that it's done, I hope you don't mind, I hope you don't mind That I put down in words How wonderful life is While you're in the world I sat on the roof And kicked off the moss Well, a few of the verses, well, they they got me quite cross But the sun's been quite kind While I wrote this song It's for people like you that Keep me turned on So excuse me for getting But these things I do, you see I've forgotten if they're if the green or the blue Anyway, the thing is What I really mean Yours are the sweetest eyes I've ever seen And you can tell everybody 
this is your song It may be quite simple But now that it's done I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind That I put down in words How wonderful life is While you're in the world I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind that I put down in words How wonderful life is How wonderful life is How wonderful life is While you're in the everyone. My name is Stephen, the movie librarian at the Code St. Luke Public Library, talking to you remotely from my small apartment in the heart of the McGill Ghetto in downtown Montreal. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope you and yours, friends and family, are all well, safe and healthy at the present time. I was going to say in these strange, unprecedented times, but uh, let's hope it won't be for too much longer, right? 
you know, we're all doing our bit, doing our best, but things are still a little crazy right now. In any case, welcome to part two of my talk about the great Hollywood producer-director Cecil B. DeMille and the making of his 1956 version of the Ten Commandments. I say version because DeMille made an earlier, slightly less ambitious one, all the way back in the silent era. But of course it is the 1956 version with Charlton Heston that everyone remembers. The one many of us first saw as small children, and because of that impressionable age, we recall it vividly still. Indeed, more than 60 years after its release, in spite of vast changes in special effects technology and in film style, as well as in the culture at large, the Ten Commandments continues to be a part of the social fabric of the world. During the on-location shooting in Egypt of the Exodus sequence in November of 1954, Charlton Heston was quoted as telling the press, The outstanding ingredient in Mr. DeMille's talent as a filmmaker is his absolutely insatiable capacity for an infinity of detail and his relentless determination to get what he wants. Generally an admirable quality, I think we can agree, there can be little doubt that DeMille took his relentless determination to extraordinary lengths. One day, while Heston stood in full costume and makeup in the boiling Egyptian sun, DeMille began rearranging people in the crowd, and Heston quotes him as saying something typical like, The woman with the blue shawl between the feet of the third colossi from the back I don't want her there. No, no, the third colossi. That's the woman. I want her down near the sand. Dear God, thought Heston, is he going to do this with 8,000 people? And you know what? He very nearly did. And you think this is ridiculous. We will never, never turn a camera. But finally he got what he wanted, and that's when he shot. And it is this kind of determination that is required to make a film like this. That was Charlton Heston. Despite the vast array of extras, animals, carts, and props, there were three takes filmed of the Exodus, with DeMille signaling the action by firing a forty-five pistol each time. And after each take, a hundred laborers spread out to collect all the debris that had been created by these thousands of extras. Then the sand in front of the set was watered down so there would be no obscuring dust kicked up by the immense crowd before the cameras began to whirl. Each take lasted ten minutes, and then came two hours of reassembling the multitude back at the starting point. The first take was done early in the morning, the second around noon, and the third late in the afternoon. On that third take, there was a problem with the camera on top of the Gates of Ramses set. The one that was supposed to shoot a reverse angle of the Exodus, with Heston, a tiny dot, in front of the thronging thousands behind him. The 73-year-old DeMille was halfway up the 107-foot height, with close friend and collaborator Henry Wilcoxon right behind him, when DeMille suddenly stopped and began to sway. His face was contorted in pain, and he was panting heavily, but managed to hook his elbow 
around a rung of the ladder, just as Will Coxon held him by the legs and told him he wouldn't let him fall. DeMille didn't think he could climb down, and Will Coxon didn't think he could carry him down, so the two men painfully inched their way up the rest of the ladder to the top of the huge set. By the time they got DeMille underneath an umbrella, he was, according to makeup man Frank Westmore, an odd shade of gray and shiny with sweat. Still on top of the set, Will Coxon moved to loosen DeMille's collar and told him that he'd better not try to climb down, but, De but DeMille slapped his hand away, then slapped him away. Who the hell do you think you are? Nobody tells me what to do. Will Coxon said they could rig something up to get him down, but DeMille's response was equally curt. Shut up, Harry. A camp doctor was brought up to the top of the set and ordered complete rest while DeMille stayed under the umbrella and Will Coxon got the rest of the shots they needed. But DeMille remained adamant. He would climb down himself or he would die trying. Soon after dark, he slowly descended the ladder and was then rushed to a hospital in Cairo. Attending him were Dr. Hussein Ibrahim, the brother of the owner of the luxurious apartment where DeMille was living, and Max Jacobson. Both doctors told DeMille that he had suffered a major heart attack, but that if he rested in bed with oxygen for four weeks, he would recover. Forget it, gentlemen, he said. I'm going to the set in the morning. Henry Wilcoxon told him that it wasn't necessary that the shots had all been rehearsed in advance and that he could direct them himself while DeMille got some much-needed rest. But DeMille shook his head. It was his movie, and he would be there in the morning. As far as DeMille was concerned, there was a film to be made, a film that he believed in, a film that he would be proud of, and nothing else mattered. From DeMille's point of view, Paramount had given him their money as well as their trust. And if word got out about the coronary, it would be a disaster for the film, and especially for Paramount Pictures, the success of which DeMille had done so much to bring about. People were depending on him. To him, neither his age nor his heart were relevant. He had to be there. So DeMille and Jacobson worked out a plan for him to continue directing the picture while enduring as little physical stress as possible. At 7.20 the next morning, DeMille's limousine pulled up to the set, and he stepped out, ready to work. He was gray and weak, but he was there. Assistant Director Chico Day remembered that he was amazing that day. He made it through most of the day, but it was evident that he was relying on his crew to a great extent, with every one of them doing his own job, as well as taking care of DeMille, as if he were their father. Will Coxon directed a couple of scenes, as did even DeMille's devoted granddaughter, Cecilia. With the concept art drilled into everybody's head, and with Will Coxon implicitly knowing how DeMille wanted scenes staged, the production continued to move ahead smoothly. Perhaps typical of DeMille at this point, he seemed less concerned about himself 
than the few people who knew the medical facts. For the remaining weeks of the location shoot, the old guy spared himself only the exertion that he gauged would probably kill him outright. He had always been good at calculating. Now he was engaged in the riskiest calculation of his life, up to and including deceiving the studio about his health. DeMille wrote Paramount executive Frank Freeman back in Hollywood, saying, and I quote, Heston is doing fine work and is an impressive Moses. I have lost much weight, and most of us have suffered from dysentery, which we did not seem to be able to cure, so I sent for Dr. Max Jacobson to come on from New York. He flew out here with Yul Brenner. I did not mention it to the New York office or anyone else why I was sending for him. He has been here now for four days, and we are all in much better shape because of it. As you know, he is one of the best doctors in America, and I felt the situation was sufficiently important to bring him on at my personal expense, which I did." End quote. Now, clearly in saying this, DeMille was attempting to pass off his heart attack and weight loss as dysentery, but of course made no mention that he was paying for Jacobson out of his own pocket to avoid studio oversight and the corporate panic that would have resulted from a 73-year-old director making the most expensive movie in history while just having suffered a heart attack on location. DeMille's personal secretary, however, Joan Bruskin, knew the truth and wrote to her husband, saying, Don't mention it to anyone except as indigestion, but it is much more serious than that. End quote. I think it's entirely possible that Paramount executives, both in Hollywood and New York, never learned the truth. After a few final scenes shot in the Valley of the Kings, the production half of the shoot in Egypt finished on December 3rd, 1954, and DeMille was back home in California a week later. After a long break, Production on the Ten Commandments resumed at Paramount Studios in March of 1955. An unusually long delay, mostly because of DeMille's ill health, though that was never officially the reason, but also because of the deaths of his brother, Bill, and another close friend and collaborator, Eddie Slavin. Construction for the studio portion of the Ten Commandments dominated everything on the Paramount lot. Of Paramount's 18 sound stages, 12 were taken up with sets for the DeMille picture. There were 20 more weeks of principal photography to go, then another year of special effects work. The parting of the Red Sea, for example, presented a particular problem because there wasn't a pool big enough to create the illusion. So the studio began demolishing the buildings that separated Paramount from RKO then used the newly created space for a 200,000 cubic foot pool in which to film it. DeMille's longtime editor, Annie Bakkins, began editing as the film flowed into her cutting room. Although DeMille arrived on the set early, he usually wouldn't get into the projection room to look at his rushes until early in the evening. They would discuss it every day, remembered DeMille's granddaughter, Cecilia. 
Annie was very much a part of the process. On one occasion, DeMille invited Charlton Heston to the studio to look at a rough assembly of the Exodus sequence. Heston thought it looked marvelous, but tried to commiserate with DeMille about his heart attack, implying that the risk entailed in continuing with the Egyptian location work hadn't been worth it. No, no, DeMille said brusquely. I had to finish there and then. Can't you see that? We couldn't have made these shots anywhere else. Assistant director Chico Day recalled that once, while walking with DeMille through the studio, an extra stopped them and inquired as to when he would be called for his scenes. In about 30 days, replied DeMille. The extra said nothing, but DeMille saw the same frayed, downcast look he had himself carried through innumerable stock company tours as a young man himself. Instead of continuing their walk, DeMille then peeled off $100 and pressed it into the man's hand. You can pay me back when you start working, he said, as he then walked away. That was the man that everybody called such an SOB, said Chico Day. I knew him very differently. He had a big heart. There was nothing small about this man. If DeMille had big scenes, as most of his pictures did, with lots of extras in them, he had often tried to schedule those scenes between Thanksgiving and Christmas so that extras could get a lot of work in during the holidays. But back on the set of the Ten Commandments, production ground on endlessly, with the golden calf sequence being a particular trial for everyone concerned. In fact, the sequence inspired one of the legendary stories about Hollywood, when one of the extras, a woman, walked up to an assistant director and inquired, who do I have to blank to get off this picture? In truth, this sequence was also very difficult for DeMille. What's wrong with you people, he once yelled while shooting the scene. Now, if you recall the golden calf scene, the assembled extras had to indicate um, a certain degree of debauchery and lasciviousness without actually showing anything because the film was, of course, intended for all ages and Hollywood films of the period were quite chaste in comparison with our own times. Among the extras in this golden calf sequence was a young man named Robert Vaughn, who would, of course, go on to become a well-known actor in films and television. DeMille was like God, he remembered about shooting the scene. The assistant directors mostly handled us. We never approached his eminence ourselves. Not even close, said Vaughn. But DeMille, of course, wasn't all menace. Far from it, in fact. One day he came home complaining about the performance of Edward G. Robinson. The actor, DeMille told his granddaughter Cecilia, wasn't giving him what he wanted. Well, why don't you tell him what you want, she asked. DeMille seemed surprised. How could I dare say anything to so talented and respected an actor? He replied. In fact, he didn't say anything to Robinson, but instead waited for his performance to develop, and ultimately became delighted with the actor's sardonic humor in the film. Oddly, the slight intimidation DeMille might have felt regarding Edward G. Robinson was not present when he was directing Sir Cedric Hardwick as the aged pharaoh. 
Of all the directors I have met, remembered Hardwick, DeMille was the only one who really knew what he wanted, even if he was sometimes forceful about it. In his 70s, DeMille's energy was unbelievable, Hardwick said. Of course, Hardwick would not have known what we know now, that the principal reason for that unbelievable energy was the concoction of drugs DeMille was being prescribed for by Dr. Jacobson. Because DeMille spent such a long time in pre-production on his films, his time on the set was usually very well focused. He always got his master shot first and wasn't afraid to play an entire scene all the way through without cutting if he felt it was going well enough. Generally, he would take a little more time in rehearsal so he could spend less time in actual shooting. And so even complicated scenes usually went fairly smoothly. In fact, Charlton Heston remembered that DeMille rarely shot more than six takes. At the end of the day, he would then usually hold his core crew members on the set while he picked the first shot for the next morning. The idea being that the following day's work would then get off to a flying start, setting the pace for the entire day. The actor Vincent Price was entranced by his entire experience on the set of The Ten Commandments. DeMille, he said, was a wonderful director to work with, unlike any other in the business. He was 100% visually minded. Really, his scripts were very thin, but the visual effects he pulled off were marvelous. What he was interested in was what was on the screen, the use of crowds, particularly. Price once told a story of acting against a blue screen on the set of the film, having to react to a spectacular combination of matte, miniature, and live-action shot in Egypt that combined to show the erecting of Pharaoh's obelisk. You're not reading that line with much conviction, DeMille pointed out. That's because I haven't the slightest idea what I'm talking about, replied Price. You're right, said DeMille. Let's go into the projection room and I'll show you. Price then watched what he correctly said was one of the most impressive scenes ever photographed. After seeing it, I changed my reading conclusions. One day a prop man inadvertently interrupted an important scene. Not knowing who it was, an angry DeMille demanded to know the identity of the offender. The prop man came forward and admitted his mistake. I just goofed, he said. DeMille responded, almost demurely, that's okay, just don't do it again. Actor Donald Curtis, who witnessed the exchange, said about it, we all learn something from that. Face the music and survive. Stand up for yourself, but never make excuses. There was one plague that was planned for the film, but never used, a plague of frogs. Anne Baxter had appeared in a test that involved her screaming as hundreds of rubber frogs hopped up and down in her bedroom or onto her bed. But since frogs are not generally perceived as terrifying, 
her reaction seemed rather comic to DeMille, so the scene was never used. Something still not widely known is that DeMille cast Charlton Heston's newborn son Fraser as the infant Moses. What amazed Heston was that following his son's birth at three in the morning, the first wire he got came two hours later from DeMille himself. Congratulations, it said. He's got the part. Now, wondering about this years later, Heston said, he must have had his people planted in the hospital. Yul Brenner, who played Ramses, of course, had been a CBS TV director in New York until his acting career took off. A smart, sophisticated man, his friend Sidney Lamette chided him about going out to Hollywood. But soon, Brenner and DeMille formed a mutual admiration society of a kind, a relationship described by everybody who witnessed it as father and son. Part of the bond, I think, was that DeMille and the actor were both intrinsically imperious personalities who could get away with things, I suppose, that lesser men would never have even attempted. Not all of the cast basked in a similar approval. DeMille took particular umbrage at Deborah Paget, a beautiful woman to be sure, but an actress whose dramatic efforts continually failed to please him. Now, Miss Paget, he growled at her one day, we will have to do that again. Not that you show any signs of doing it any better, but maybe the fates will smile upon us yet. DeMille was probably responsible for making one of the great Hollywood musical careers when he hired a young man named Elmer Bernstein, initially only to supply some incidental music on the film. Victor Young, who had been DeMille's first choice to score every one of his films since Northwest Mounted Police in 1940, was in New York and committed to another project. I was taken over to meet him, said Bernstein, and he was very courtly. It was always Mr. Bernstein, even though I was old enough to be his grandson. He said, Mr. Bernstein, do you think you could do for ancient Egyptian music what Puccini did for Japanese music and Madame Butterfly? That was his first question to me. I thought about that, and I think I gave him the only answer that it could have kept me on the film. I said, I really don't know but I would sure like to try. And I think that was precisely the right answer for him. I think if I had said, oh yes, of course, I would have been out of there very, very quickly. By the end of May, 1955, DeMille had suffered a major heart attack, the deaths of his brother and most trusted assistant director, and yet the Ten Commandments was only five days behind schedule. A remarkable feat considering the size of the film. He still relied on Dr. Jacobson for what he called the magic fluid that would battle his physical pains and help him get through the day. There was five or six weeks left of principal photography, he wrote to Jacobson, and he was working hard to complete the job. I think, he wrote, you are probably as much responsible for the completion of this picture as I will be, end quote. On August 13th, after 161 days of production, DeMille wrapped principal photography on the Ten Commandments, 
but ahead lay more than a year of special effects work. Of that, the most crucial was the parting of the Red Sea, the single greatest special effect in movie history, according to Steven Spielberg. Aside from these effects, one of the problems that DeMille had faced was photographing details that historians had only vague knowledge of. For instance, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. What script should he use? How to arrange the commandments on the tablets? What should the tablets look like? And what should the tablets be made of? For DeMille, nothing would do but the red granite of Mount Sinai itself. But of necessity, Paramount's prop department ended up making three sets of tablets out of fiberglass, which they then speckled with red granite, because the complete granite master envisioned by DeMille would just have been far too heavy for even Charlton Heston to hold. As 1955 became 1956, time became a problem. The film was locked into premiering in November of 1956, and by the summer of that year, DeMille and his crew began to sweat. The director okayed some composite shots that should have gone through the printer a few more times, but postponing the holiday season premiere would have been unthinkable. There were a few other details to sort through. Casting the voice of God presented understandable problems. We tried everything suggested by anyone, remembered DeMille, and in fact, they tried individual actors. They tried a chorale. They tried voices underwater. They tried voices amplified in canyons. There was even some thought about using mechanical means, as with an organ, with the sound department organizing the tones into words. We tried everything, and everything was wrong, said DeMille. Finally, the project was broken down into different voices for different segments. The voice heard by Charlton Heston at the burning bush is actually Heston's own voice, but slowed down. As DeMille put it, God spoke to Moses through his mind, so it was natural that it would be his own voice. Now, the voice of God on Mount Sinai was a different matter entirely, and there remains much conjecture as to whose voice it really belongs. In fact, it may be a combination of voices, those of Heston, DeMille, and perhaps a few other people. Getting the voice right, getting the special effects right, that was a painstaking process, but time had finally run out. In addition, Paramount, having spent more money than anybody had ever spent on a movie before, was very nervous. When New York had made inquiries in the past about wrapping up the picture, DeMille had always the same response ready. Tell them we can stop right now and call it the Five Commandments. But he could do so no longer. A few weeks before the premiere of the film, DeMille shot an unprecedented introduction for it, in which, parting the gold curtains, he strode toward a microphone that rose as if by magic from the floor to address the audience. The introduction put the film in the context of freedom versus slavery, God versus godlessness, democracy versus communism. Now, historically, this was an extremely shaky premise, for the Egyptians, after all, were very religious. But DeMille was speaking to a world that was about to witness the brutal suppression of the Hungarian uprising. 
for example. And of course, the United States of the 1950s was a country very much uh, in the middle of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. His introduction also openly explained, um, and it's interesting, you don't often see this introduction anymore. If you, for example, were to watch the Ten Commandments on ABC television as it's been broadcast for so many decades, um, the introduction is no longer a part of the screening of the film. But um, for contemporary audiences, it definitely was very much um, at the beginning of the movie. And in that introduction, DeMille openly explained that it had been necessary to, quote, fill in the areas of the life of Moses that the Bible had omitted. On the one hand, the emphasis on ancient texts diffused potential protests. On the other, for anybody that was paying attention, the nature of said texts also made the audience aware that parts of the narrative were, shall we say, conjectural. On September 18th, Charlton Heston saw the completed picture for the first time. The whole picture is so much more than the sum of its parts that I feel only the smallest responsibility for what's on the screen, Heston wrote in his diary. Everyone at the lunch, from Grover Whalen to Louis B. Mayer, seemed impressed with it. I guess I'll stand or fall on this one. There will be many more screenings in the next few months, and Heston's considered take would always be tempered. Unique and inimitable it certainly is, he said, and often magnificent as well, but I'm afraid it's also shot through with flaws. But maybe the man who could have avoided the flaws also wouldn't have captured its magnificence. As for my own work, it could be better. The film's sole public preview was in Salt Lake City. The print DeMille and his entourage brought to town ran three hours and 45 minutes. A reporter for the Desert News was present and wrote that, and I quote, moviegoers sat in awe, completely spellbound. Other times they applauded. DeMille must have been satisfied only six minutes would be cut from the final version. The Ten Commandments finally opened, debuting at the Criterion Theater in New York on November 8, 1956. The reviews were quite good, and business was spectacular, becoming Hollywood's greatest financial success since Gone with the Wind, 17 years earlier. For the next six months, DeMille embarked on what can only be described as a victory tour, flying around the world with the movie as it rolled out and meeting the most important luminaries everywhere he went. The Ten Commandments was nominated for Oscars in seven categories, including Best Picture, but much to DeMille's uh, dismay, it only won for special effects. He knew the film represented the summation of his career, and he also knew that it had as later generations would say, pushed the envelope in art direction, sound, and costuming, among others. After the picture was released, DeMille called Elmer Bernstein one last time into his office. There, scattered around the room, were 40 or 50 paintings. DeMille asked him which one he liked best, 
the composer pointed to a painting of a Chinese scribe. DeMille wanted to know why he liked that one best. Well, Bernstein said, it has a tremendous sense of repose, a kind of peaceful feeling, and it gives me that same feeling. DeMille nodded and sent the composer on his way. When Bernstein got home that evening, the painting of the scribe was waiting for him, beautifully framed. The composer kept it in his Santa Barbara house for the rest of his life. The Ten Commandments was something more than a film, said Bernstein. And DeMille, well, he was much more than just a director. Thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, wishing you the best. Until next time, this has been Stephen, your movie librarian. Bye-bye for now.